Bibles, John chapter number 8 this morning. I tell you, I'm a blessed person. You know, we take so much for granted. We all promised we wouldn't, didn't we? A couple of years ago, we said we ain't never going to take it for granted again, getting to go to church, getting to meet together, and uh, how quickly we forget, don't we? And what a blessing it is. You know, there's people all over the world would love to do what we're doing today. And there's people that are doing it under threat of death and arrest and all kinds of things. And you got to get in, in a car and drive here today, and you might have paid more than you should have for gas. And uh, you might be paying more than you should at the grocery store. In fact, I guarantee that you are. But still, what a blessing it is to be able to be in as free a country as we're in. Say, preacher, are we still in a free country? Well, it's not as free as I wish it was, but it's sure a lot freer than most places in the world. And what a blessing it is to get to gather in this place. John chapter number 8 this morning. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 28. You know, the book of John, one of the challenges when you're preaching in the book of John is you never know where to start because you don't want to leave anything out. There's just everything so good in it. Uh, but I had to pick a place for us to start. And so I picked verse number 28. And we'll read down to verse number 37. The Bible says, Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, But as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God. Lord, thank you for letting us be in a country where we are free to worship. Lord, where we've not had to cross police barriers, where we've not had to come under cloak of darkness to this place, but we've been able to come in freedom and to worship today, Lord. And we're so thankful for that. And we know that that freedom only exists because this nation was founded by people that fundamentally believed in the freedom that the gospel provides. And Lord, I pray that this morning we'd have our perspective correct, that as we approach the Word of God, this would not merely be a national day of of celebration, but it would be a moment of spiritual reflection where we allow you to do a work in our hearts and our minds through the Word of God. We'll be sure to thank you for all that happens. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we've noted in our text this morning, the topic that is at heart, that the Lord Jesus really gets down to, is the topic of freedom. You're going to hear a lot about freedom on this day and at this time of year. But oftentimes I think that we confuse the idea of freedom and the idea of license. The idea that we uh, are free, what does that exactly mean? You know, in our depraved condition, and everybody's born in a depraved condition. We all are. We're all born lost. Amen? Uh, we're not born saved. We're born again to get saved. We're all born in a lost condition. And oftentimes, through mankind's perspective, freedom is the freedom to always do the worst thing. 
And I fear that in our society we've set the standard, although noble in intention, that freedom always means doing the absolute worst, the absolute lowest. And while I do believe that, uh, you know, civically that freedom does mean the liberty to make choices that other people may not agree with, I would say this, that Christian freedom and Christian liberty is not the liberty to live lower, it's the liberty to climb higher. It's not the freedom, hey, it's it's not liberty to low living, but it's uh, liberty to grace-filled living. And the Lord Jesus begins to talk about this idea of freedom. How is a man made free? You'll hear today, and, and I'm not disputing, I'm not dismissing, and I'm not disagreeing with it fundamentally. You'll hear people say, well, we're free in our country because people have went and fought and died for that freedom. And certainly there is truth to that. Don't misunderstand me. But you know, men would have never went and fought and died for that freedom if they didn't believe in freedom in the first place. And the only reason we believe in freedom in this country is because uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ is what sets men free. Uh, As we move further away from the gospel in our country, we move closer to tyranny. And that's not by accident. That's not by incident. Uh, When men begin to believe themselves to be God, they begin to act like God. And when they dismiss the reality of God, they step into that role to try to fill that void. That's why the greatest thing we could be as a nation is a godly nation. It's the freest we can be uh, is to be a godly nation. And so the Lord Jesus lays His finger on this issue. And I would say that we as a society have enjoyed the freedom that we have, not because everybody in America is saved or even at any time throughout America's history that everybody that was here was saved, but because the majority of the people that are here believed in the concept of the freedom that Christ offers. And the Lord Jesus reveals this truth to us. Now, I want you to notice this passage begins with two important events. Uh, First, we see in verses 28 and 29, there is a supernatural revelation. Jesus says this, uh, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. He that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please Him. What an amazing thing the Lord Jesus says in that statement. Now, again, if you were to study the entirety of the chapter, it would give you more context. But Jesus is boiling down the arguments that He has made, the statements that He has set forth in the preceding verses. And He's saying, you know, what it boils down to is this. I am the Son of God. I am God the Son. He proclaims His divinity. He declares that He's going to be lifted up. He proclaims His death. And then He He describes how if they would believe in Him and trust in Him, they would know God personally. In the same way that the Father is with Jesus, He would be with them. He proclaims His deliverance. We could say that in germ form, we have all the components for the concept of the gospel here. In other words, here's a group of people that are faced with the reality of the gospel. You know, everywhere across this city and across this country, there'll be people that sit in church pews like you're sitting in today, and they will be confronted with the truth of the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 declares plainly to us what the gospel is. Uh, That Christ died according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Don't miss that according to the Scriptures because it tells us uh, there's some context to it. In other words, Christ not just being a good man, but being in fact God in the flesh. That He died not just a sad death or a martyr's death, but a substitutionary's death, a Messiah's death. He died in your place and in my place 
place. That He was buried and that He rose again according to the Scriptures. Meaning what? That He rose up in power and in glory and He is now alive and able to save. In other words, the Lord Jesus presents to them a, a confrontational choice concerning Himself. Now, what are they going to do? I want you to notice what verse 30 says. I told you there's two important things happening here. The first is a supernatural revelation in verses 28 and 29. And verse 30 says this, As He spake these words, many believed on Him. Now, I don't know about you, I, I love to hear that. Many believed on Him. I, 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 when we have church camp, I, I have a, a running policy, Brother Ken, let's say, a, a policy. I, any salvations I hear about within three months of church camp, I count for church camp. I ain't just talking about kids at camp either. I mean, I hear revivals happening in the far-flung corners of the earth. I say, man, praise God, we've had 637 people saved at church camp. Amen. And, you know, I say a lot of that tongue-in-cheek, but I also I say it because we ought to make a big deal, not just when, when people are saved through the efforts of this church, but when they're genuinely, truly born again, they believe on the Lord Jesus, whatever the avenue might be, hey, if God was willing to save them, then I ought to rejoice in that. Amen? If the angels in heaven are rejoicing, I ought to be rejoicing as well. And I rejoice when I read that, but then... As I read a little further, there's something that bothers me. And it happens down in verse number 59. Now, there's a foreshadowing of it that the Lord makes a statement in verse 37. He says to these same people, I know that you're Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. Now, that's an alarming and arresting statement. Here's a group of people that have professed that they believed on him. But the Lord, knowing their heart, says, My word hath no place in you. And sure enough, by the time we get to the end of the chapter, verse 59 says, Then took they up stones to cast at him. Now, we can parse through this, but can I just say it real simple? Evidently, these folks made a profession, but they had no possession. They had declared that they had believed on the Lord. But we come to the end of the chapter and we find out, in fact, that they had not believed on the Lord, that this was all a show and nothing more. So I would say it this way. There's a supernatural revelation. But in verse 30, we learn there is a superficial response. Now, here's the question that we have to ask. Why would people give this superficial response? I mean, I understand that we live in probably the freest country throughout human history here today. But even in Bible times at this time in Palestine, in Israel, they had the freedom if they had wanted to just turn him away. They could have just declared boldly, we think you're a radical, we think you're a rabble-rouser, we're not interested in turning away. Why did they declare that they believed on Him when in fact we find later that they had not? Well, I think we get to the heart of the matter as we move further into the text. But let me just summarize it by saying this. I think they believe faith to be merely an intellectual ascension or affirmation to the things that He said. Can I tell you, we talk about head knowledge and heart knowledge. Can I tell you what head knowledge is? It's acknowledging, admitting, and, and I'm going to use this $10 word, acquiescing, submitting to the idea that something is true without ever believing on it in the matter of trust concerning your heart. Uh, there's a lot of people that would agree with you that Jesus is the Son of God, but they've never come to Him and asked Him for forgiveness. They would agree with you that he died according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and they are sincere in their confidence that those events happen. But there's never been a time when they've come to him and received him as Christ and as Savior. In other words, they had a form of faith, but it was not saving faith. They had an acknowledgement of truth, but not an appropriating of the person who is the truth. 
Christ proceeds to declare that mere intellectual agreement or affirmation is not enough. And we, especially here in, in the Bible Belt and the buckle of the Bible Belt here in the South, we have a lot of people. And you can around, you can talk to them, man. You can witness to them. Everybody's saved. Let me tell you something. If as many people are saved as say they saved, Knoxville wouldn't look like Knoxville looks. All the violence, all the ugliness, all the hatred. Uh, it wouldn't look the way that it looks if Christ was living in everybody that says that they know Him. Now, I want to I want to be abundantly clear this morning. Listen, if you're born again, if you believed on the Lord, I have no interest in trying to convince you otherwise. But I do want you to understand it's not merely a matter of saying, well, I, yeah, I acknowledge those things are true. I'm willing to check the box mentally that I believe those things happen. Rather, it's coming to Him and receiving Him. It's not enough to just intellectually agree with these things. We must experience the freedom that comes from believing and receiving Christ as our Lord and Liberator. We find three statements that the Lord Jesus gives us in the following verses where He unpacks the things that these people say. I want you to notice them with me this morning. The first that He declares is the revelation that provides freedom. We, uh, again, and I think this is a great misnomer, freedom in our country today is secured because it's an inalienable right given from God. Governments don't grant freedom. They respect freedom, or they should, but they don't grant freedom. God is the one that grants freedom. But now, here's a question that must be asked. Freedom can be granted, but how is it grasped? And the Lord Jesus reveals how this happens in the life of the individual. In fact, freedom is grasped through the apprehension of the truth and the living in the strength and the reality of it. You know, there's people all over. I remember hearing a preacher tell a uh, story years ago. He was talking about Samson carrying away the gates there uh, in the book of Judges. And he said, you can imagine if there was somebody in that city who was a captive and who was bound, who thought there was no freedom and thought there was no way out. Those gates have been carried away. And imagine they could have lived the rest of their lives there. And if nobody had told them the gates were gone, they would have died there a captive just the same. I think about the lepers in the uh, book of First Kings who after the Lord uh, smote the Assyrians were sitting there perishing, starving to death while the enemy had already been slain and had already been destroyed and there was a camp full of bounty and full of provision and uh, the one leper looks at the other one and says, why sit we here till we die? Let us go and let us see. And there's a great many people that are sitting and dying in their sins today that don't have to. And there's a simple reason why, because they don't know and have the truth. Now, there's such a thing as holding the truth in unrighteousness. And there are folks that know the truth and reject it. There's a great many people in the world today that simply don't know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a lot more that think they do than there are that really do. There's people that think that that the gospel is merely saying you're a Christian. That's not what the gospel is. There's people that think that the gospel is going to church, and that's not what the gospel is. But I would say this, that if we want sinners to come to Christ, we have to communicate clearly the truth of the gospel. Those who the Bible says Satan has blinded their minds from the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ can only be set free. And how is that? Well, Jesus says this in verse 32. He says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Notice a few thoughts here in our text. Verse 31, Jesus begins by making a statement about the transformative power of the gospel in people's lives. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on Him, if ye continue in My word, then are ye My disciples. And I want you to notice this last word. He says, indeed. 
We have here, number one, the evidence of the disciples. Why is Jesus making this statement? A great many people have misinterpreted this to the Lord Jesus saying, you can't be my disciple unless you're willing to continue in my word. But that's not what the Lord says here. Rather, what He says is, you have proclaimed that you believed in me. You've proclaimed that you put your trust in me. You've proclaimed that I'm your Savior. We're going to see whether that's true relative to whether or not you're willing to continue in my word. I say, listen, talk is cheap. We can say we're a disciple of Jesus Christ, but if we're not willing to live like a disciple, now we might be saved, and there's a great many people that are saved on their way to heaven, barely. You with me this morning? Hey, listen, these sweet people here cooked you all kinds of barbecue. You better help the preacher this morning. All right? Y'all stayed up half the night shooting off fireworks, catching half the county on fire. You can amen me a little bit this morning. (laughs) There's a lot of people that are saved on their way to heaven, barely. So what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, they're saved. They're as saved as I am. They're as saved as you are. But that's about all you could say about their life is that they believed on the Lord and then they've never done a thing for Him afterwards. The Lord looks at these people. He says, well, you want to know whether you're my disciple? Are you going to continue in my word? He speaks about the evidence of a disciple. And then He speaks about the enlightenment of the disciple. He says, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Uh, it's interesting when he speaks about the truth in this passage. We have this concept that that by having the truth revealed to us, that that in and of itself is what sets us free. And yet we find that Israel as a nation, even to this day, holds the truth of God in unrighteousness. It is not just the idea of the truth, but I would say this. What's the Lord talking about? Two things. One, he's talking about knowing the truth as a principle. We live in a world today of intellectual, moral, philosophical relativism where the idea is that there's really no right and there's really no wrong. But you know something you're going to find? You get born again and start serving God, you're going to find out there is right and there is wrong. You're going to learn the truth as a principle. But you know, I think it goes a little further. Can I remind you in John chapter 14, the Lord Jesus said, I am the way, the what? The truth and the lie. He is not merely here speaking about people understanding the gospel and putting their faith in Him, but rather He's saying that those that have put their faith in Him and then begin to live the truth of the Word of God are going to find that it is a progressive experience as they grow more in the truth. They will not just know the truth as a principle that there is right and that there is wrong, but they will in fact know the truth as a person as well. They'll know who He is. I tell you, the way you know truth is get to know the truth. You say, now, preacher, are you saying there's nothing true outside of that Bible? Well, I'm saying this, there's nothing as true as this Bible. But beyond that, I'm saying that this book is the mind, personality, heart of Christ put down on paper for you and I to read, learn, absorb, and cherish. If we want to know the truth, we know it by knowing the truth. In the beginning was the Word. That's what John chapter 1 says. You could quote it with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, right? The Word is not just the product of man's pen, but rather it is the very character, nature, and personality of God. And it was manifest, revealed to mankind when Christ walked amongst men. The human incarnation of the truth of the Word of God. That's what it says. The Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst So it's not just a matter of do you know the truth academically, but it's rather do you know the truth personally. Personally, do you know the Lord Jesus? We see the enlightenment of the disciple, but then we see the emancipation of the disciple. He says, and the truth shall make you free. Man, I love the way the Holy Ghost says that. He always says it just right. When men try to take and twist it, they always mess it up. But the Lord, He always says it just right. The Holy Ghost said, He did not say the truth shall set you free. You'll hear people say that, right? 
And now, let me say, I'm glad the truth has the capacity to set you free, but that's not what the Lord's saying here. He says it'll make you free. Now, what's the distinction between those two? Well, there's a couple things. One, I'd say this, you can be set free and captured again. But if you're made free, no man can lawfully claim you again. But I also would say this, he's not merely painting the picture of a person who is in their right condition, but has sadly been laid capture to by some nefarious force. Rather, he's talking about a person being born into bondage and slavery, who has no right or claim over their own person, who has now been given a new status because they've been born into a new family. When you got born again, there's a lot of Christians walking around not walking in the liberty and freedom that comes in Jesus Christ. They have been made free, but they're still not set free. So what's the difference, preacher? Well, uh, the you know, Paul talked about those who are taken captive by Satan at his will. There's a lot of people that live a life of disobedience to the Lord, and they're just as much in bondage today uh, as they were. They may be saved on their way to heaven, but looking at their life, they're living a life of bondage today, the very same way that they did before they ever got born again. They have been made free, but only through obedience to the Word of God are you going to be set free. We see the emancipation of the disciple. And, and, you know, when you know the truth and only when you know the truth can you be made free to really make the, the true choice. There is a battle raging in our society right now about what you and I should read, hear, see, and know. And they have learned that they can wield information or withhold information as a weapon and as a means of coercion. And while I don't believe that the Christian is always edified and helped by being exposed to everything, I do believe that there's something tyrannical about people trying to hide the truth of man. Uh, trying to always hide them behind disclaimers, banners, and labels. Trying to cast dispersions and doubts on this and that because they don't want you to think for yourself. They're terrified you might make an unapproved opinion out of it. And as such, what are they doing? They're trying to keep men in chains. They're trying to keep them in bondage. You know, Lord Jesus does the exact opposite. He tells you the truth so that you now genuinely have the freedom to make a decision. Uh, People have asked me about the past few years about everything that went on, and my position has fundamentally stayed the same, that we're free Americans. We ought to have freedom of choice to do the things that do not destroy the lives of others, but rather are things that are within the personal purview of our own decision. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, you know, I've had people ask me, well, preacher, what about masks? What about vaccines? What about this? What about that? And I told them early on, some of y'all sat in here and remembered me saying it. I didn't take you to raise. You're adults. Make your own choices. Amen. Oh, that's okay. I, I got, I, I, we'll be friends again when you're eating that barbecue. <laughs> well, okay. Don't worry. Don't get nervous. But you see, we live in a society where tyranny is running rampant and unchecked and is manifesting fundamentally in trying to keep you from being able to make decisions regarding your own life and your own well-being. You say, what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying this, the Lord Jesus does the opposite thing. You know that that God has enough confidence in the Holy Spirit to allow you to make choices. He's willing to woo you. He's willing to convince you. He says, hey, come let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. He doesn't say, come and let me wrestle you. He says, come, let us reason together. And you'll find this, the freest life you'll ever live is the life that you live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. The devil's going to try to tell you and convince you that that way lies bondage, that way lies boredom, that way lies bitterness. But I'm here to tell you, that way and that way only is the only way that allows freedom. The devil's got you in chains. He don't want you to believe that you're in chains. 
But He's got you in chains. Only Christ can set you free. He points to this revelation that provides freedom. But then notice their answer in verse 33. This is very telling. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How, how say, some of y'all have read your history book. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Let me tell you something. You think they're dumber than they are when you read that. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, you're sitting there and you're laughing the same way that I'm laughing when I read it. Boy, they must be ignorant to not know about their history. I don't mean this to sound unkind, but have you ever known a Jew to be unaware of their history of oppression? They know all about it. They, their entire religion is based, a great portion of it, around the retelling of the oppression that they've experienced. So when they make this statement, there's an interesting thing. Man, there's multiple layers going on here. But we could basically sum it up in two things. Notice number one, we see their blindness. Now, notice the problem with their statement. We be Abraham's seed and we're never in bondage to any man. Uh, First problem with it is simply this. It's wrong. The worst problem that can exist with any statement is for it to be wrong. And this statement is wrong. In fact, they were in bondage at that time. The Romans had subjugated them. Uh, prior to them, the, the, uh, the successors of Alexander the Great had them in bondage. The Seleucidans and uh, the various different, the Ptolemaean empires. Prior to that, the Greeks had them in bondage. And prior to that, uh, the Babylonians uh, had, or the Persians had them in bondage. And prior to that, the Babylonians had them in bondage. And if you go a little further back than that, there was a time when uh, in Egypt they were in bondage. If you go to the book of Judges, it is literally just a gallery of examples of their bondage. All through their history, they were in bondage. Now, here's the problem. We read that and say, well, them dumb, ignorant people, they didn't even know their own history. I beg to differ. I think they did. So then the question becomes, what are they really saying? They make a philosophical statement here, and they say this, that freedom is defined as a state of mind rather than a state of national existence. What they're really saying is, yeah, it's true, we've been in bondage, but because we are a heavenly people, because we are Abraham's seed, they could bind our hands, but they couldn't bind our spirits. Boy, it sounds noble, doesn't it? Till the Lord Jesus drives a nail right through the heart of it. Man, we live in this day today. The exact polar opposite. You'll talk to people and we'll say, you know, you're not free. You've got this and you've got that. And here's what they're fundamentally saying when people say, well, I'm free and they don't know Christ. What they're really saying is, I agree with my master. There's a difference between agreeing with your master and being free. All across the globe today, men are yielding to tyranny because they agree with their tyrannical masters. But that's not the same as freedom. Freedom gives you the liberty to do something that your master might disagree with. I tell you this, hey, if you want to live wrong, God will let you live wrong. It may break your life, it may break your heart, it may break your testimony, and it may even destroy you. But he won't force you to serve him. You know why? That's what freedom really is. Uh, The devil will do his best to put you in a grave if you try to break free of his bonds. You know why? Because he is not a benevolent master. What they're saying is interesting here. They're saying they could bind our wrists, Lord, but they could never bind our spirit. But we find that this is all folly as well. Notice not only the problem with their statement, but notice the pride of their statement. Their statement is not sourced out of any real deep feeling of freedom they have, 
But rather it's sourced out of being scandalized that the Lord would ever suggest that they need to be set free in the first place. You'd say this, How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Let me tell you the sad state that the devil gets people in. They'll, they'll, they'll ride their sin and their pride all the way to hell rather than admit that they need help. There's people that would rather, even in the midst of a brokenness that, that is, that is dripping from their life, would rather cling to their pride than have to admit that they're lost and on their way to hell and need salvation. I'm going to tell you, listen, I don't know how proud you are of your pride, but your pride is not worth it. I've told people before, man, and this happens, it'll be invitation time and people will be struggling. And we all do because we have flesh. But I've told people before, your pride ain't worth dying and going to hell. They were offended that he would suggest that they needed a liberator. And can I tell you, a lot of people die and go to hell today because they're offended at the notion that they need a Savior. Because if they need a Savior, it must mean that they're a sinner and they're unwilling to admit that they're a sinner. They'll never have their chains struck off because they're too prideful to admit that they were ever in bondage in the first place. And that's part of the reason our society has this drunken, mad infatuation with glorifying depravity. Because they're running away from the shameful reality of how they're living. We just went through what the world calls Pride Month. It's amazing to me. I have never known a sodomite that did not say, don't just define me as a sodomite. I'm not just a sodomite. And then all they want to talk about is being a sodomite. I, listen, I mean, there, there's there's a lot. Uh, the, I'm a Ford man, but you don't see me marching at the front of a parade with feathers all over me. You might not ever know I drive a Ford unless we just happen to get around to talking about it. And they'll say, well, this doesn't define my identity. But they got a whole month devoted for it. Well, that's all they want to talk about. They want, to, they want to plaster it all over every television commercial, every single, everything that comes across. You can't even walk into a government building without being slapped across the head with rainbows and, and with all sorts of things. I understand the rainbow is God's symbol. It don't change the fact that they've taken it and tried to co-opt it and make it something to pray. Amen. You say, now preacher, what are you getting at with all this? I'm saying this. If they're so confident in the way they're living, why are they trying so hard? You say, well, what's it all about, preacher? Well, here's the thing. Uh, They're running away from what they know deep in their soul to be true. They know. I don't know about, listen, you don't have to be, you don't have to have no doctorate in biology to understand that that's an unnatural way of behaving and living. And they know that. That's not lost on them. They understand that. And so they're running hard as they can away from it. Now, all right, preacher, that's good. You done preach them sodomites away. You You done give it to them. So let's just preach at church people for a little while. Because let me tell you something. God's people do the exact same thing. I can't tell you the times I've seen people double down in their sin rather than admit that it was wrong in the first place. I was talking to somebody last night. We were talking about church people are funny. Church people are weird. They are. They are. I, they are. I've known people. You're weird, Doug. I, the, amen. You know what I've known people to do? I've known people to I, I've known people to do something silly, stupid, something dumb, then get embarrassed over it, and then leave because they can't get over the embarrassment of something that nobody else even remembers. Say, so what is that preacher? That's pride. That's pride. Not wanting to admit in the first place. I'm saying this, man. Pride's a nefarious thing. Pride's a wicked thing. And the thing that kept them from being liberated was they were unwilling to admit that they were in chains in the first place. 
people will die and go to hell before they'll admit that they're a sinner and that they need a Savior. That's why Paul said the preaching of the cross is an offense to them which perish. Why would you be offended that someone loved you enough to die for you? Why would you be offended that God in heaven, a thrice holy, all-glorious God, would leave His throne because He thinks that much of you. He loves you that much. He is that concerned with you. And go to the cross of Calvary and have the sin of humanity poured on Him and Him become our punishment. Why would that offend a person? I'll tell you why. Because before they can ever accept any of that, they have to first accept that they're a sinner lost on their way to hell. Or else it has no meaning to them. And the pride of man is so nefarious, so sinister, that it won't allow them to do it. We find here their blindness. But then notice their bondage, verse 34. Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Man, let me tell you, the Lord had a way of saying things. <laughs> now think about what they just said. I know, I, I, I need to get on and preach. Look, Think about this. We be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou ye shall be made free? Now, I'll tell you what you or I would have done in our ignorant way. We would have said, well, sure, you've been in bondage to these people and these people and these people and these people. That's not what the Lord says. He just takes and, and, and he, he picks up his sword and he just wields it deftly. And listen to what he says. Jesus answered them, verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Here's what they said. They said, you don't understand, Lord. You don't understand freedom is not a national thing. It is a personal and intellectual thing. The Lord takes out His sword and said, excuse me, you don't understand. Freedom is neither national, personal, or intellectual. It is, in fact, spiritual. You can't really be made free until you're given the freedom that's in Jesus Christ. Notice two things that He points to. Notice, number one, how it ensnared them. I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin... This denotes the idea of an active lifestyle of sin. But I would also just remind you of this. The fact that we do at times commit sin, and all of us do, is a reminder. It, 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 it's, it's the scars from the chains that were once struck around us. That sin nature is not going to be eradicated till one day when we get to heaven. And so we still bear the scars of that in our life. And we still bear the echoes and remnants of that. But you know, when you got born again, sin should no longer be your master. The Savior should be your master. They were living a lifestyle of sin. And you know what that suggested? Not only how it ensnared them, but how it enslaved them. I love it, man. The Lord says, you ain't nobody's slave? Then quit sinning. You ain't nobody's slave? Then walk in righteousness. What he says here is you think you're free, but you're really only free to do what the devil wants you to do. That's the kind of freedom this world preaches and promotes. They call it freedom. And listen, we're getting into peak levels of doublespeak in our society today where literally men will will call peace war and war peace, where men will call good evil and evil good. We're living in a society today where where they they will literally call the warping and destroying of truth uh, correcting disinformation. I'm talking about we're in peak levels, absurd, clown world levels of doublespeak in our society. But you know, the very first example ever of it in Scripture was when the devil looked at Eve and said, In the day that ye eat thereof, ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And to this very day, sin is still lying, and Satan is still lying to the hearts of men and saying, You're free. But here's the truth of the matter. If you're free, quit living that way. Amen. If you're really so free, quit living that way. 
If you're really that free, lay your bottle down. If you're really that free, lay that needle down. If you're really, if you're really that free, lay that lifestyle down. Here's the truth of the matter. You can't. You know why? Because not only have you not been set free, you've not even been made free yet. Only the Lord can do that in your life. Freedom is not freedom. Freedom is not permission to live within the purview of accepted principles and ideals. Freedom is the real choice and decision to make whatever decision that we might desire to do. And the Lord is the only one that offers that kind of freedom to you. (laughs) I hate getting licenses of any kind. To me, a, a license is the... How do I say this? To me, a license is the absolute most offensive, incomprehensible, symbolic sign and symbol of oppression in a free society. I'm talking about I feel that strongly about it when it's time to renew my tags. When it's time to go get a a hunting license, I grade at doing it. I do it. At least if anybody asks you, I do. But I hate doing it. You know why? Because it's you buying back a freedom that ought to have been yours in the first place. You know, the devil does the exact same thing. He puts a fence up in a yard and says, here, you have freedom, but you can't go beyond that barrier. You can't go beyond that brokenness. You can't go beyond that sin, because if you do, you're going to find that he's not going to let you go. Only a stronger man can come in and spoil the house and set you free. Only one that has the strength to break the chains can give you real freedom. And here they were saying, we've never been in bondage. Sure, we've had Gentile chains on us for millennia. Sure, we've had oppressors that have not led us. But our spirits have been free. And he said, no, they haven't. You say they have, but you're still living the same old broken life that you always lived. How's that free? All you're doing is living in the devil's backyard and nothing more. He speaks of their bondage. And then notice... So how does it happen? Here's got to be the question. All right, preacher, how does it happen? Well, he speaks of three things, as we said. The revelation that provides freedom. The rejection that prevents freedom. But then notice in verse 35, he talks about the relationship that promises freedom. How is a man made free? Well, the Bible says in verse 35, The servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore make you free. If the son therefore shall make you free. Amen. He shall be free indeed. He speaks of three things here. One, he speaks of the fate of the servant. He says, the servant abideth not in the house forever. Now, just explicitly, here's what he's talking about. He's talking about Israel nationally enjoying the blessings of God. And he's saying, right now, your relationship with God is not predicated on sonship, but on servitude. You are servants of the law. And therefore, if you don't abide by the law then God's going to withdraw His blessings upon you and you're going to be expelled from the land. In fact, that did happen in 70 A.D. And he's saying, you know, you need something stronger than servitude. You need sonship. Can I tell you, I'm glad my salvation ain't dependent on me making it to church every Sunday. And I'm here every Sunday, but I'm glad it ain't dependent on that. I'm glad my salvation ain't dependent upon me being a good student of the Bible. I'm glad it ain't dependent. In fact, I'm glad it's dependent only upon the purchase price of the blood of Jesus Christ. I sure would hate to go back to being a servant. I've done tasted what it's like to be a son. And I couldn't imagine going back. Notice two things he points out. 
about the fate of the servant. One, he points out his unstable position. The servant abideth not in the house forever. He could be kicked out at any time. Even somebody like Ishmael in the Old Testament, who was the natural born son of Abraham, was still cast out. Why? Because he was the son of the bondwoman. He had no stable position. You know, I would hate to live my life on on pins and needles wondering if I'm going to make it to heaven, if I'm going to be in a right condition when I die. Can I go ahead and save you the trouble? You can't be in a right enough condition outside of Christ to go to heaven when you die. I'm talking about, man, it amazes me. I can't imagine the church of God, the church of Christ, the, the people that say, well, I can work my way to heaven and I'll get there. How do they not live in constant anxiety, tortured by the thought that they could die at any time? outside of obedience to Christ. You know, you ain't got to live that way, and even living that way ain't going to help you. But there's a greater truth that I think is being spoken of here. He's speaking about Israel as a nation and God withdrawing His hand of blessing from it. And He's saying this, right now, if you live right, things will go right. If you live wrong, things will go wrong. Wouldn't you like something more stable than that? And can I just tell you this? There's all kinds of people that say, when I preach, one of these days I'm going to get saved. One of these days I'm going to get right. One of these days I'm going to give my heart to Christ. One of these days... Yeah, if that day ever comes around. Or you could take today. You say, preacher, can I get saved today? Well, I don't know. The Bible says today's the day of salvation. I don't know how it gets much clearer, right? I, I, hey, listen, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I don't know how much clearer it could be. Hey, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. I don't know how it could be any clearer. Preacher, should I get saved today? If you're lost, you should. If you're lost, you should. Why is that? Well, because here's the truth. You don't know but when your life could be cut short. Hey, listen, the servant abideth not in the house forever. I'll have plenty of time, preacher, to be a good person. I ain't asking you to be a good person. I'm asking you to get saved. Because the truth is, your life could be cut short at any moment. Talks about his unstable position. Then he says this. He talks about his eventual expulsion. You know, a servant, try as he may, if there were sons in the house, the best he could ever hope for was just a gold watch and a thank you for your years. He wasn't ever going to become an heir. Sooner or later, he was going to be put out of that house. Can I tell you the truth? You may live a hundred years, but sooner or later, you're going to be put out of the house and you're going to have to stand before God. And what are you going to be standing before God predicated on? Sooner or later, you're going to have to stand before Him and answer for the way that you've lived. What are you going to be standing on? I'll tell you, I'm not going to be standing on some flimsy baptism. I ain't going to be standing on some church membership. Man, I've been part of church my whole life. (laughs) I I sure enough ain't going to stand on... You know, they let just about anybody into these things anymore. So, I I, I sure enough ain't going to stand on... I mean, they let me in. I ain't going to stand on that. I ain't going to stand on my good works that are but but filthy rags in the eyes of God. You better have something more to stand on than just those things. Hey, sooner or later, the servant would be kicked out. But you know, then he says this. He speaks about the fate of the servant, but then he talks about the favor of the son. Verse 35, I like this. But the son, but the son abideth ever. Now again, he's painting the portrait of an oriental home and one in which... Uh, inheritance and, and succession is being discussed. And he's saying, you know, the servant, he might be the best servant in the house, but he's still a servant. And he might serve as faithfully as a man could serve, but sooner or later he's going to be put out of the house. The only way to secure a position is to be a son and not a servant. Notice two things that he speaks of here. And who's the son? Well, the son is him. 
He just got through saying back in verse number 28, he said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am He. He he went on to say, as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. He went on to say, the Father hath not left me alone. So there's no debate about who the Son is in verse 35. The Son is Him. And notice two things about Him. Notice number one, His status. He never has been the servant. He's always been the Son. Now, what was the servant that he was just talking about a second ago? Well, he said, whosoever committed sin is the servant of sin. But you know, Jesus has never been the servant of sin. He's always been the Son. Impeccably righteous, perfectly pure. There's never been a time where there's been in question the the, the integrity of the way he lives and, and what he did. Hey, the Bible says it in three different ways that he did no sin, he knew no sin, in him was no sin. Uh, and, and then just here's an extra bonus round. It says he was wholly separate from sinners categorically. doesn't mean geographically. There were times he ate with publicans and sinners. But, but it says that he was separate from sinners. Categorically, he was different than them. He was perfect. He was sinless. Because of that, there was never any question. And then, you know, the truth is, even, even if he hadn't been, and I want to be careful how I say this, let me, let me rather say it this way. I am a son. I am not a perfect son to my parents. Most of the time, I'm close. But everybody has a bad day, you know. But you know, the truth is, even if I was a rotten son, I'd still be their son. I have a security that a servant could never have. Notice not only his status, but his security. As the son, he will never be cast out. His place is secure. So here's the question. You say, all right, preacher, I get it. I'm tracking with you. I understand what you're saying. I, I understand it. If I'm lost, I'm the servant of sin, and sooner or later I will die. Sin will not carry me all the way through eternity. This life won't carry I mean, sooner or later I'm going to die. I'm going to have to face God. I understand I'm not truly free, that, that if I tried to break out of this life of sin apart from Christ, that, that I wouldn't be able to. All right, preacher, I get it. I get that Jesus don't have those problems because He's the perfect, impeccable, immaculate Son of God. So, preacher, what do I do about it? Well, here's what you need to have done. So you're a servant, but you need to become a son. I wonder if there's a way that a servant could become a son in the Bible. Well, the Bible says this in John chapter number 1, that uh, he came unto his own, and his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on his name. In other words, you need a change in status. You've got to quit being a servant and start to become a son. Now, how does that happen? Well, notice the source of this freedom. Let's say it under this heading. We see not only the fate of the servant and the favor of the son, but we see the freedom of salvation. What's the source of this freedom? Do you just earn it? No, that's not how it happens. Do you prove yourself? No, that's not how it happens. Do you make the Father a bunch of promises? No, that's not how it happens. Maybe baptism, maybe church membership, maybe taking uh, communion, maybe any... No, Tells us how, verse 36, if the Son therefore shall make you free. In other words, you're going to have to have a personal relationship with the Son because the Son is the only one that can make you free. He has the authority to declare you to be free. Nobody else does, but He does. Man, this is why it's so fundamentally important to understand the truth of the resurrection because He's alive today to save. He makes you free. It's not just saying, well, yeah, I believe he lived. Yeah, I believe he was good. Yeah, I believe all these things. It's coming to him and asking him for forgiveness, calling upon his name, receiving him as Savior, because he's the only one that can make you free. Him and him alone. 
The source of this freedom is Him. If you don't have Him, you don't have freedom. If you have never met Him, you don't have freedom. If He is not your Savior, you don't have freedom. If He has not made you free, you do not have freedom. He and He alone can save you and make you free. Notice the source of this freedom, but then finally, and I'm done, notice the substance of it. I like how he says it. We find this word showing up again. Ye shall be free indeed. I like that word indeed. Don't you, Ken? Indeed. I ain't just free. Man, I'm free indeed. God has double stamped my freedom. He has certified it in the blood of Christ. And I'm not just a little free. I'm not just barely free. I'm not just free to think the things approved by our overlords. I am free and free indeed. What does that mean? Well, notice, I think in the context it means two things. One, it means a secure position. It means that my relationship to the family of God is not predicated on my behavior or misbehavior. But rather, I'm free indeed. Just as a son, if a son makes mistakes and errs and does things wrong, does not cease to be a son, so likewise my salvation is not based upon me keeping a set of rules or or maintaining an unbroken track record. It's not about me holding up or holding in or holding out. It's about Him holding on to me. I'm secure in my position. You say, preacher, do you believe in this whole once saved, always saved? Absolutely I do. Absolutely, 100%, triple times over with two double scoops on top. Yes, I believe in the eternal security of the belief. I believe if you got your life from God, you got everlasting life because that's the only kind He's got to give. I believe that no man shall pluck you out of the Father's hand. I believe that nobody, I believe you can't unborn a baby. I believe once they're born, they're born. I believe you can't go backwards. I believe you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. How many times and ways you want me to say it? I believe we are eternally, everlastingly, securely, invincibly saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because I'm not a servant. Oh, I'm a bond slave to Jesus Christ. There's no doubt. But my relationship to the Father is that of a son. He is my heavenly Father. I am securely His. I see a secure position. But then I notice that it means a second thing. Now, here's what here's what the devil says. The devil says, you're free, you're free, you're free. But what he really means is, you're free to do what I want. It's amazing how our perspective of freedom changes when we find ourselves at cross purposes with the authority in our lives. But here's the question. Are you free indeed? When you got born again, you became truly, genuinely free. You know what it means? It means not only a secure position, but a sincere decision to be made in your life. You can choose to not live for the Lord. You say, preacher, do you believe that? Yeah, I pastored a bunch of them. I'm glad you laughed at that, Ken. I pastored a bunch of them. Saved. Barely. Just barely. I mean, you if you look hard enough, you can tell they was a Christian. But that was about it. I've pastored plenty of them. I've known plenty of them. You've known plenty of them. Sure, you can choose to live a disobedience to the Lord. There's a lot of people do it. Say, preacher, will God strike me dead? Well, maybe. I don't know. We couldn't blame him if he did. I got barbecue for you. You help me now. (laughs) And then I've known a lot of them to live for him too. Praise God. You know why? Because if you get born again, you really get to choose. See, when you're lost, all you know to do is to live in disobedience to God. You don't have no choice. It's amazing how this world touts individuality so much. 
talks uh, that we hear the word diversity bandied about so much. We're living in a world where our greatest strength is diversity. And if you don't agree with it, we'll put you in jail. Think about that. We, we live in a world today where it's all about individuality as long as every individual looks identical one to another. So what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying, you see, that's the kind of freedom the devil sell you. He'll tell you you're free until you go to do something he don't like. Then you'll find out you ain't exactly free. But you know, when you get born again, you really get to choose how you want to live your life. You'll have consequences, sure. But you now get a choice in the way that you live. I like what one writer said. You shall be free indeed. Free from what? Christian liberty. Spiritual liberty consists of this. First, deliverance from the condemnation of sin, the penalty of the law, the wrath of God. Second, deliverance from the power of Satan. Third, from the bondage of sin. Fourth, from the authority of man. Christians are delivered from the things just mentioned that they may be free to serve God. The believer is the Lord's freeman. The Lord's a divine title which ever emphasizes our submission to His authority. When a sinner is saved, he's not free to follow the bent of his old nature, for that would be lawlessness. Spiritual freedom is not licensed to do as I please, but emancipation from the bondage of sin and Satan that I may do as I ought. I like how it says in Luke chapter 1 that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our life. Preacher, I'm already free. I don't need this religion. All right, then live for God. Let's make it real simple. Preacher, I don't need this Christianity. I'm already free. All right, then command your heart to have peace. Pillow your head at night and rest. Preacher, you don't understand. I'm free. I don't need all this. All right, put the bottle down then. Put the needle down then. Go ahead, if you're free. If you're free, do it. The truth is, only Christ can make you free. But you know what? If you'll come to Him, He'll give you a freedom. Hey, free indeed. That's the kind of freedom I got today. Free indeed. I ain't waiting to find out if the Supreme Court believes in it. I'm free indeed. I ain't waiting to find out if they let us ever have an election again. I'm free indeed. I'm free in Jesus Christ, and you can be today as well. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. Are you free this morning? Are you free enough to come to Christ? I'm free. I don't need all that. Then prove it. Come to Him today. Say, preacher, I'm saved. I'm born again. I've been made free. But I ain't been set free of some things. There's some things I'm struggling with. Preacher, would you pray for me? If that's you, would you slip your hand up? Let me pray for you. Karen, come play the piano for us. Say, preacher, that's me. There's some things I'm battling with in my life. Please pray for me. Slip your hand up and let me pray for you. Is there anybody else? How many would say, preacher, if I'm being honest, and I saw those hands that you put up a moment ago. Is there anybody that say, preacher, I know that I'm free in Christ, but I've got someone I love dearly who is in the bondage the gall of iniquity. They're lost. They need to be saved. Please help me pray for them. Slip your hand up. Let me pray for them. I see hands all over this room. I will. I'll pray for them here in just a moment. I wonder if there'll be somebody that'd say, Preacher, it's me. It's me. I, I, I accept that these things are true, but if I'm to be honest, I've never asked Christ to forgive me and save me. I thought it was enough to just acknowledge that those things were true. I didn't realize it's a matter of coming to Him and asking Him for forgiveness. Let's just say it real simple. Preacher, I believe I'm lost. Please pray for me. Would you slip your hand up? Let me pray for you. Is there anyone all across the room? I'll pray for you. I won't call your name or embarrass you, but I'll pray for you.
Preacher, I believe I'm lost. I don't want to be. Please pray for me. The altar is open. God's dealing with hearts. If you've got somebody your heart is burdened over and you have liberty to do so, why don't you come pray for them this morning? The altar is open. Some are coming even now. If God touched your heart, I want you to come.